0: day on Against the Grain. What's the relationship between literacy and power in the colonial context? I'm CS. The Australian scholar Laura Rademacher describes how English literacy became an arena of contestation between Christian colonizers and an aboriginal community. Coming right up This is Against the Grain. On Pacifica Radio, my name is C.S. Song. We can civilize them. We can teach them our religion. We can get them to learn our language. We can move them from ignorance to literacy. Thoughts like these, strategies such as these, have been pursued by countless colonizers and missionaries over many centuries, but their aims and ambitions have not always been realized. At many times and many places, indigenous people have refused to learn the language or learned it only to wield it against mission authorities, against the colonizer. Laura Rademacher has spent time on an Australian island learning about an aboriginal community targeted by a Christian mission. Rademacher is an historian based at the Center for Indigenous History at the Australian National University. Her article, Going Off Script, Aboriginal Rejection and Repurposing of English Literacies, appears in the volume Indigenous Textual Cultures, Reading and Writing in the Age of Global Empire. The article is adapted from a chapter of Laura's book, Found in Translation, Many Meanings on a North Australian Mission. When Laura and I connected recently, I asked her what Western narratives of modernization, of what constitutes modernity, say about what happens when indigenous societies make the transition from oral-based culture to literacy.
1: Sure. Well, we have this, this story that it's, it's actually embedded in our very academic disciplines, um, that cultures progress from oral to literate, from savage to civilized, um, from traditional to sort of modern sophistication. When you look at the disciplines of history and archaeology, we, we divide our disciplines. We have prehistory before writing and then history begins uh, when cultures adopt writing. And I, I wanted to interrogate that assumption, to critique it. Um, it's it's interesting, I guess, you see it particularly in the, in the USA, this idea that... Um, Indigenous cultures, uh, First Nation cultures were especially vulnerable to colonization because they didn't have writing. Uh, But once writing arrives, uh, cultures inevitably sort of give way and Indigenous people are always eager to adopt writing because it's um, so sort of intrinsically superior to oral ways of uh, communicating and oral traditions.
0: And is that the case? Just speaking about uh, Indigenous societies generally, uh, globally, is it the case that uh, Indigenous people are eager to uh, take up reading and writing when it's made available to them?
1: Sure. Well, it, look, it has been true in many places, but it's certainly not been a universal experience. Um, indigenous people have encountered writing in diverse ways and in different contexts, and so um, and have their own cultural and political and social priorities, and so have responded in really different ways and engaged with writing in really different ways. Uh, in the Pacific, quite famously, historians talk of the literate revolution that rolled through the Pacific when missionaries, who mostly were not actually Europeans, most missionaries in the Pacific were Pacific Islanders themselves, uh, when they went to to spread Christian texts. Pacific Islanders uh, very quickly uh, adopted writing in their own languages and were, were eager to learn to read, and there was a huge production of missionary texts. Uh, but in other contexts, that wasn't necessarily the case. Uh, it wasn't the case in Australia. Uh, First Nations peoples in Australia responded quite differently and diversely as well. And I'm particularly interested in the people of Groot Island and the Aqua people there who, um, I argue, rejected writing in English on the whole and were eager to maintain their oral ways of communicating and their oral cultures.
0: Yeah, so your piece looks at the history of Aboriginal people living in uh, Groot Island. Where is that?
1: Groot Island, look, not many Australians know where Groot Island is. Uh, Groot Island, it's in the Gulf of Carpentaria in the north of Australia. So um, there's sort of a, a U shape at the top of Australia. It's, it's in the, that body of water there.
0: Have Indigenous people always lived on the island? And I guess it, it's also uh, part of an archipelago, is that right?
1: Uh, yes, so there's a, there's a cluster of islands that go out to Groot Island. The largest one is, is Bickerton Island. Groot Island hasn't been inhabited forever. Some of the clans arrived more recently, as early as the, the early 20th century. Others had been there for uh, archaeologists think around 3,000 years. Uh, Groot Islanders know it was a very long time, but unlike other Aboriginal people, Groot Islanders will have have stories of their migration to their country.
0: And how did Indigenous people on the island? How did they communicate other than orally before European and English writing came to the Set of islands.
1: So, Groot Islanders They have a an ancient artistic tradition, and their their art is quite distinct from other art from the mainland. They're, they're famous for their bark paintings, which admittedly are more recent, uh, which have a really striking black charcoal background, and then the images are superimposed on these black backgrounds, producing really striking images. And they they record history and stories uh, in these images. They also have been painting on rock for millennia, um, and there are some beautiful rock art, um, ancient rock art and more recent rock art depicting the arrival of Makassans from Indonesia and uh, the arrival of Europeans. Uh, Grid Islanders, uh, like many Aboriginal people, have used what they call message sticks to communicate. Now, These are, um, you know, they they function like a letter in a way, they're portable. Uh, It's a stick with carved and painted designs on it, uh, which can pass on messages such as informing people when an important ceremony is going to be on, when a funeral is on, uh, informing other groups that people are coming to visit and things like this. And these message sticks, although it's not, uh, they don't use writing per se, they do use symbols and a combination of uh, these secret symbols and mnemonic devices to communicate messages with other people groups.
0: So in other words, uh, a fairly sophisticated and as you were saying, um, artistic means of communication.
1: Yes, of course. Um, and I should also have mentioned that um, songs have been really the, one of the primary ways of communicating history and story, especially with other groups. And for millennia, Good Islanders have met with people in the mainland for ceremony and different groups will sing their different parts in the ceremony, uh, the parts that tell stories about their country. And so these are the ways that stories about the landscape a passed down, but also the landscape itself, in a way, tells the story because of the way the stories are so connected to singing about the country.
0: Now, the Indigenous people on Groot Island, again, in uh, off the coast of North Australia, uh, the people you're, you've investigated, you've researched, you've gone and talked to and written about, uh, they first got exposed to English writing in 1943. What language did they speak, you know, before uh, they were exposed to English and how did these, this particular group of people, find their way to Groot Island?
1: Yeah, it's, it's important to remember that aqua um, people, Groot Islanders, have been multilingual for a very long time. It's not like English rolled along and for the first time they had to deal with another culture. Uh, Groot Islanders traditionally, um, will marry outside their clan. So they'll marry people who speak different languages. Groot Islanders can speak Anadidakwa, their own language, Nugumbuyu, one of the mainland languages, um, and various other languages from around North Australia. Many of them also could speak Makassan Creole, which is a language from Indonesia, spoken on the the fishing boats, which would come down every year. Uh, But in 1943, a permanent mission settlement was established on Groot Island. Uh, This actually wasn't their first encounter with the English language. There had been another mission established on Groot Island in the 1920s, but this mission wasn't to Groot Islanders themselves. It was actually a mission um, associated with what is known as the Stolen Generation in Australia. Uh, The Stolen Generation was when Aboriginal children with mixed racial descent. Aboriginal children with European heritage were forcibly removed from their families. They were you know, stolen by the police in many cases and taken to institutions. Uh, and this church missionary society that operated on Groot Island had a mission for the so-called half-caste children on Groot Island. So Groot Islanders were able to observe the mission and they interacted with the Europeans working there. They often traded with them. They supplied food to the mission and, and things like that. And they observed these children uh, being subjected to European schooling, but it wasn't until the 1940s that a mission aimed at the Groot Islanders themselves was established. And one of the core planks of this mission was, uh, I mean, they wanted to assimilate Groot Islanders into white Australia. They wanted to convert them to Christianity. And one of the the core ways of doing this was to teach them to speak and to read English. So
0: they wanted to assimilate these Indigenous people uh, into white Australia, and yet, You know, there must have been some uh, racism felt by these missionaries, by these white missionaries. So I I wonder to what extent some beliefs about the inferiority of indigenous people, about the superiority of whites over uh, people of color might have affected the degree to which they really wanted these indigenous people to assimilate into uh, white Australian Christian ways, or more specifically, to become kind of the equivalent of white australians in terms of status and rights
1: oh, of course i mean the whole project is is premised on a on a white supremacism a, a sense of white racial superiority um, you can see that in the way that they start with the um, what they call the half-caste children because of their white heritage they were more able to assimilate and then supposedly became more enlightened by believing that, in fact, you know, so-called, what they used to call full-blooded Aboriginal people could also be made to assimilate. Uh, the missionaries thought this was a more enlightened position, but of course it's, it's premised on the superiority of, of white culture, um, the belief that white Australia is more civilised and sophisticated and that it was in Aboriginal people's best interest to become culturally indistinguishable from white Australia. Um, And they they talked quite openly, I mean, this was government policy, but talking quite openly in those terms that Aboriginal people would be simply darker members of a white culture and that they they would have no cultural distinction at all.
0: That's the voice of Laura Rademacher. She is a postdoctoral research associate in the Centre for Indigenous History at the Australian National University. We are talking about her article, Going Off Script. Aboriginal Rejection and Repurposing of English Literacies, it appears in the volume Indigenous Textual Cultures, Reading and Writing in the Age of Global Empire. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So what did the missionaries do toward the end of assimilating these indigenous people into Australian citizenship?
1: One of of the primary ways that missionaries worked to assimilate was through the use of dormitories. Uh, So there was a dormitory set up almost immediately on Grid Island in the early 1940s. Uh, The dormitory had a number of goals. Uh, The missionaries said it was designed to prevent sexual violence against Aboriginal children, Um, but of course as we know the children were exposed to sexual violence in these very dormitories at the hands of some of the missionaries. Uh, The dormitory was also designed to expose children constantly to the English language. English only was spoken in the dormitory. If the children wanted to speak their own language with each other, they had to do it in secret, you know, in their playtime or when they were out and about. But they were under constant surveillance from missionaries who enforced the English language. Now, in some cases, there were some Aboriginal parents who believed that learning to speak English would be valuable for their children. They, they saw that being able to speak English uh, enabled you to, at times, outmaneuver the colonizers, to assert your own rights and interests. So there were some parents who who cooperated with missionaries in allowing their children to go into these dormitories, but that was certainly not always the case, and there were many children who were, who were forcibly removed uh, without their parents' consent to live in these institutions.
0: So in terms of... Teaching these children English literacy in the school set up by the mission, Um, we're talking about it was just incorporated in the curriculum, this is what you need to learn, this is what you need to read, and maybe what what kinds of texts were uh, children typically assigned to read in English?
1: Sure, well the the Commonwealth Government introduced a syllabus for Aboriginal children in the early 1950s and the whole aim of this syllabus was to promote assimilation. So I I went back and I read some of the the little textbooks that were prepared and you know there are examples like Nari and Manala, these two fictional children, go to school. Nari and Manala get a job. Nari and Manila go to work. Nari and Manala read books. Uh, It was entirely drilling all the time this white Australian lifestyle that Aboriginal children were intended to conform to uh, the the missions were funded by the commonwealth government uh, and their funding was conditional on whether they use this curriculum they were also under regular inspections uh, inspectors would come and report on whether the missionary teachers ever used any aboriginal languages and there was the threat of funding being withdrawn if aboriginal languages were found to be present in the classroom and for that reason uh, children were also punished if they were speaking their languages at school. Uh, There was a very firm uh, focus on English. And I I even found one government document which conceded that Aboriginal languages would have been in the educational interest of the students. That is, that students would learn better if they were taught in their own languages. But in the interest of assimilation, and they they flatly said that, in the interest of assimilation, English must be used.
0: Now, as part of your research, you have spoken with uh, many people who... Uh, lived at the mission, who experienced what the mission was trying to do. Again, we're talking about a an island off the coast of uh, North Australia, that is part of Australia, where these uh, aboriginal people were encouraged, or in some cases coerced, to, to learn or to be instructed in English. And I'm wondering what uh, they told you about the psychological effect of not being able to speak their language and having to speak and learn to read and write in English.
1: You can't understate how important the Anandilakwa language is to Anandilakwa people. Uh, The language is the way that knowledge is passed down through the generations the way that country is understood the way the landscape speaks the way songs the songs are all in language and so the possibility that this language would be eliminated was was devastating people told me about how when they were little children they they had to to speak their language in secret with the other children or they would they would have secret discussions with their parents and relatives around the around the mission in language uh, but they were always under the a surveillance of missionaries, and uh, in missionary presence I needed to speak English. Even those who had more positive memories of mission, and look, some of the memories of the mission time are diverse. Some people had better or worse experiences. Even those who converted to Christianity were still quite angry and resentful about the way their language was suppressed.
0: You note that missionary staff kept detailed written records. What kinds of things did they keep track of? and? Yeah, why did they keep these records?
1: I mean, this was great for me as an historian that the mission archive is just—it was so comprehensive. The missionaries—they were obsessed with writing. I think writing was a way that they—they they sort of felt like things were under control. The way that they. Impress themselves the way that they impressed their superiors so there were records of all the children in the dormitory and in the school for every day which they needed to supply to the government in order to continue receiving funding but there were also uh every missionary from the you know the mechanic the superintendent the home management instructress whose job it was to teach aboriginal women how to look after their houses in the ways that white women looked after their houses, they all had to write monthly reports uh, and submit these to the Aborigines secretary of the Church Missionary Society in Sydney, and he would write back to them and appraise them or uh, critique them for the way that they were working. Uh, so all of these records have been kept. Uh, the missions missionaries also, they often kept journals as part of their spiritual practice. They, they would read the Bible and they would reflect on biblical texts, the mission chaplain Wrote sermons, and many of these have been kept. Um, so there's a there's a real thorough record, uh, f- well, from the missionary perspective, of what was going on.
0: Can you talk more about what you were saying about writing on the part of the missionaries? You know, by the missionaries, as a means of control, as a means of attempted control, a means of creating a kind of, I think, in your piece, you talk about creating kind of a rational order that made sense to the missionaries and that was in fact desired by the missionaries?
1: So by writing everything down in such detail, uh, the missionaries were trying to create a a rational, a, a modern society where people worked efficiently, where every hour was accounted for. All the aboriginal workers they were recorded what they were doing and when Uh, people's names were recorded in the in the ration book children's names were all included in the role Uh, there was expected to be a, a kind of order where everyone was accounted for and that the missionaries could prove to the, the various government departments, which oversaw their work and proved to their superiors down in Sydney, that they were creating this, this civilized space. Uh, so writing was, was really bound up in this, this kind of civilizing project that they were undertaking.
0: And did these records written, of course, in English, the records kept by the missionaries, did they always deliver the kind of clarity that the missionaries wanted and create the kind of order that they desired?
1: No, no, it's ironic, actually, that the records were a cause of constant stress to the missionaries. It seems like they were never complete, there were always errors, the missionaries had problems with spelling Aboriginal names, uh, the missionaries had diverse linguistic competence, uh, some of them really struggled with Aboriginal names, and so people's names are spelt in all kinds of different ways, and it was hard to know what was talking about, who, um, but also, um, Aboriginal family norms. So um, Anjiakwa families don't, family relationships don't map on to the Western nuclear family model. Uh, It's quite normal for children to have many mothers, uh, women in their extended kinship who, from a Western perspective, are not their biological mother, but from an Anadjaqwa perspective, are their mother and fulfill the role of mothers. Children have many mothers, many fathers, various aunties, cousin brothers, all these extended relations. And the missionaries, just they, they really struggled to work it out. Uh, they were trying to account for all these children, but they had trouble identifying. They recorded some people multiple times. They had missed others. They couldn't work out who was responsible for whom. Uh, their supposedly rational orderly system didn't map on to energy aqua life or culture. Um, it didn't create the rational order that they hoped for.
0: I'm C.S. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Laura Rademacher joins me. She is a postdoctoral research associate in the Center for Indigenous History at the Australian National University. We are talking about an article she contributed to the volume Indigenous Textual Cultures, Reading and Writing in the Age of Global Empire. And that article is a condensed version of a chapter in Laura's book called Found in Translation, Many Meanings on a North Australian Mission. Her article and that chapter examine how Aboriginal people on a North Australian island responded to efforts by Christian missionaries to get them to learn and read and write English, and what this says about the relationship between language, literacy, identity, power, quote, civilization, religion, and colonialism talk more about the importance of writing to the missionary sense of their religion their protestant religion and of their civilizational status
1: for the missionaries they their religion was was so bound up in literacy they had trouble conceiving of how one could be a christian apart from reading and writing so as i mentioned they they had their quiet times this was you know, personal reflection and Bible reading each day, Uh, not because they wanted to read the Bible to get more information, but because it was a a ritual practice for them. Reading was part of their spirituality. Uh, They talk about lay readers. Uh, The preaching on a Sunday is done by readers. Their Sunday services were... um, controlled by the prayer book, with readings from the prayer book, readings from the Bible. Uh, The missionaries talked about not being able to relate to Indigenous people who couldn't read because reading was so much a part of their spiritual practice. And so um, also as, as Protestants, you know, personal reflection, personal Bible reading and personal interpretation of the Bible and practices like Bible studies where they discuss the meaning of biblical texts and ask questions of each other, all of this was was integral to their religion, uh, which is perhaps all the more interesting. Why they they didn't translate the Bible and why they didn't pay attention to Aboriginal languages? You would expect, as Protestants, that would have been the you know the the beginning of their mission, the translated Bible that was going to speak to Aboriginal people. But interestingly, uh, they were so bound up in this ideology of assimilation of Aboriginal people. Uh, in a way, their their commitment to whiteness and their commitment to assimilation triumphed over their evangelical commitment to Bible translation, uh, but it remained a, a literate religion, but they expected Aboriginal people to become Christians in English.
0: And for them, as you write, the missionaries, English literacy was also a symbol and a precondition of citizenship. You've already referred to this. Can you expand on that?
1: Yes, certainly. The the missionaries talked about eventually Aboriginal people would be granted citizenship rights and they would be able to vote in elections and they would be able to participate in white Australia. But all of that hinged on whether or not Aboriginal people could gain the kind of literacy that missionaries themselves had. Uh, It was going to be a conditional citizenship and they saw that literacy was, was central to all of that.
0: And we've talked a lot about the efforts missionaries made to get children to learn to read and write in English, Uh, what efforts did they, the missionaries, make to reach out to adult Aboriginal people on this North Australian island and to get them to engage with English and to write it?
1: So the mission, it it really was focused on children. They were most intensely pressured to assimilate, but Aboriginal people, or Aboriginal adults, also worked on the mission uh, for rations and later for pay. And these people were encouraged to for example to record their work in the in the paybook, um, to write their names to sign their names and to start being sort of enculturated into this uh, mission literacy into this culture that the missionaries participated in they were also um, conditionally rewarded for performing kinds of literacy especially christian kinds of literacy so um, there's examples of Aboriginal people, uh, one man in particular, wrote a letter describing his conversion experience and wanting to read the Bible, and this letter was published in the, in the Mission Newsletter. And he was, he was richly praised for this kind of writing and for this kind of desire to read and was rewarded with uh, leadership and authority in the church.
0: Yeah, and in fact, some adults who were part of this Aboriginal community must have seen a certain benefits to learning to read and write in English.
1: Definitely, there, there were benefits to learning to read and write and especially as people were thinking about well, how could they assert their interests through things like petitions and reading and writing and um, following the news and things like that. Remember there's no TV back in the day. Uh, reading and writing was, was a potential route to assert Aboriginal interests. Um, and there's an example of the Anangu people actually gathered together and arranged some petitions that they sent down to the Secretary for Aborigines in Sydney, demanding that the superintendent be replaced. Uh, in a way, they were kind of enacting this literate uh, citizenship that the missionaries had wanted. They were they were using writing to assert their interests and express a kind of self-determination for their community. Uh, they were participating like democratic citizens should. Uh, but interestingly, well actually not interesting, surprisingly, well not unsurprisingly, I should say, um, this was not received well by the Mission Society. When Aboriginal people did write, uh, their writing was often rejected and questioned. In this case, uh, it was assumed that their petition was inauthentic, that a missionary had put them up to it, and they couldn't possibly have been demanding their rights like this. So even though Aboriginal people saw writing could produce some avenues for for freedom and for asserting their interests, uh, when Aboriginal people pursued this, uh, these were quickly squashed by missionaries.
0: Ah, right. This is an example, and there are a number of others in your article, about the Aboriginal people, the Indigenous people going off script, right?
1: What happened was, when people did embrace reading and writing, um, they used it in ways that the missionaries didn't anticipate and that missionaries often frowned upon. Uh, they didn't use the, the Christian literacy, this sort of literate citizenship in the way that missionaries hoped.
0: And what do you find significant about that? Is it that uh, when we talk about people who are exploited or oppressed, that often the focus is on their uh, status as victims? And in this case, uh, this pushes back against that idea that, you know, these people had agency and they would act uh, independently of the desires of, in this case, uh, the missionaries, even if they, you know, did adopt some form of literacy?
1: Yes, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm pushing back I don't want to deny that these people have been victims of huge injustice at colonisation, but also that in this they have had agency and have asserted themselves and have seized, uh, seized these technologies and these new forms of knowledges that the missionaries brought and have used them, turned them against the missionaries and turned them against the colonial authorities. Um, so there's, there's agency even in these, these situations of great inequality and injustice.
0: I read one of the letters, it's in your piece, uh, written to, I guess, the central authority urging that the new superintendent, Mr. Taylor, be removed from his post, as you alluded to earlier. The spelling and grammar are irregular, to say the least, and, you know, it makes sense. These people are learning a new language. Uh, But couldn't this be pointed to by the higher-ups to say that the letter writers weren't thinking clearly or weren't qualified to make judgments about the performance of this superintendent they didn't like?
1: Sure, and that's what exactly what happened. Uh, it was argued that Anadjaka people didn't have the capacity to write petitions asserting their interest. Uh, they didn't point to the irregular spelling and grammar, in the less it, it was a more uh, a general point about, um, I guess, Anadjaka political capacity. But yes, it was deemed that these letters that were demanding a change in superintendent uh, were simply... Um, were generated by a disgruntled missionary, that they weren't authentic to energy people.
0: Did this strategy of silencing or trying to silence Indigenous claims by questioning their authenticity, uh, was that a common strategy? And I'm not just thinking of authorities in Australia, but just more generally?
1: Uh, Yes, it it has been a common strategy to suggest that uh, Indigenous people have been been puppets um, mimic non-Indigenous people in their world and that they're essentially beholden to non-Indigenous interests Uh, when Indigenous people assert themselves. uh, It's very quickly um, undercut, have been very quickly undercut as not authentically Indigenous. Um, Indigenous people are today as well constantly asked to prove their authenticity, that they really are acting as Indigenous people. And I think this is a starker example where um, the authorities frankly said, oh, this is not authored by Indigenous people, but there are many other more subtle ways that Indigenous authority is undercut through this question of authenticity.
0: Laura Rademacher is her name, R-A-D-E-M-A-K-E-R. She's a scholar based at the Center for Indigenous History at the Australian National University. She's author of Found in Translation, Many Meanings on a North Australian Mission. And one of the chapters of that book has been adapted turned into an article called Going Off Script, Aboriginal Rejection and Repurposing of English Literacies. You can find it in the new volume, Indigenous Textual Cultures, Reading and Writing in the Age of Global Empire. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. On againstthegrain.org, we've put a link to Laura and her work and her book and to the book, Indigenous Textual Cultures sweetheart letters. You point to the practice of writing sweetheart letters by uh, the Aboriginal folks and how the missionaries responded to it. What happened?
1: Yes, so part of the reason for the establishment of the dormitory was the missionaries were concerned that girls were getting married too young. Uh, In Anadylaka kinship system, girls are promised in marriage to older men uh, and would often marry quite young. I guess um, girls would often have their, their boyfriends, their promised husbands in the bush, and these men would be obliged to give gifts to them and to give gifts to the girl's kin. And so it's, it's really important for them to maintain these relationships despite the presence of the dormitory. Uh, and these girls are learning to read and write. And they, they put their newfound literacy to work in the kinship system uh, to secure their relationships with their promised husbands and also to make claims on their promised husbands to continue giving gifts to them and their relatives. Uh, So the girls start writing these love letters to men uh, associated with the mission and the men write letters back. And look, you would, I mean, in a way, you would think that the missionaries should praise this. Look, the girls are becoming literate, uh, they're writing letters, they're behaving in a way like white Australians by their letter writing. But of course, the missionaries um, didn't at all endorse this. They were greatly alarmed that Anna girls would start using writing to uphold part of their culture that the missionaries were trying to stamp out. The missions, they were alarmed, they started introducing uh, punishments for anyone found writing a letter to a dormitory girl or any dormitory girl found writing a letter. Girls were given the strap and I'm sure there were many other corporal punishments for letter writers. Uh, There was one example of a girl who received a letter from a man outside the dormitory and she apparently wasn't interested in this man's advances and um, actually handed over his letter to missionaries and he was um, he was exiled from from the island he was kicked out of his own country uh, made to live in the mainland eventually he was jailed in darwin for unrelated reasons but for Groot islanders this was evidence that uh, first of the missionaries had great power but also that letter writing was such a terrible offense to the missionaries that you could be jailed in darwin for writing letters but this didn't stop the letters being written. Um, the girls continued to write their sweetheart letters. The men who were promised to the girls continued to write letters back. Uh, the missionaries had great difficulty uh, controlling any of this. Um, the writing was just was out of their control.
0: Being punished for writing sweetheart letters, having the authorship of their uh, complaints to mission authorities be questioned. I mean, this must have made a lot of these letter writers rethink the whole literacy initiative pursued by the missionaries?
1: Sure, I mean it's, it's only logical. These, these missionaries come in and they're obsessed with reading and writing and getting Aboriginal people to read and write. And then when they do, uh, their writing is dismissed, they are punished for writing, they're deemed to be writing in the wrong way, they're not performing the, you know, the civilised Christian citizenship that the missionaries anticipated, uh, and their writing is suppressed. And my understanding is that this caused many Angeleca people to turn their backs on written literacy altogether. It it wasn't offering the benefits that missionaries promised. In fact, they were being punished for their writing. And I think uh, many people chose not to engage with the missionaries from this point, uh, not to pursue learning to read and write, and to continue to practice a solely oral culture.
0: Yeah, and you write that by refusing to learn how to read, for example, uh, you could kind of make a statement about the value to you of church teachings, of mission rules, of all kinds of things that you think the missionary is trying to get you to adhere to.
1: Exactly. I mean, if you, if you can't read, you can't participate. You're not participating in the services on Sunday, which require reading from hymn books and prayer books. If you can't read, you can't be expected to follow uh, missionary rules, which are posted on the on the notice boards. You know, they put the names of people with the cleanest and dirtiest houses on the notice board and put rules and shamed people up through these written announcements. Um, but if you can't read, you're you're untouched by that. You the missionaries um, they can't in enforce their regulations on you. Uh, if you can't read, you couldn't be expected to follow the timetables necessarily, or to know uh, what were expectations were required of you. It's a way of evading the missionaries, of escaping out from underneath them, um, and I guess containing their influence.
0: By the late 1960s, the mission authorities, again, at this on this North Australian island uh, where Aboriginal people were Uh, taught to read and write English, and many of uh, the adults in this aboriginal population were encouraged to learn how to read and write. Uh, You know, your focus, your research uh, focuses a lot on how these people responded to efforts by Christian missionaries to get them to learn English so the mission authorities in the, in the 60s, in the late 60s, as you alluded to much earlier, became committed to bilingual education, education in both English and in the language. And I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, I can't pronounce the language. Um, how did this go? How did this bilingual initiative go?
1: So the missionaries, um, they saw that. Assimilation simply wasn't working, um, and they became convinced that bilingual education was the the way to reach Aboriginal people, the way to Christianise them, but also would be more effective for their education. Uh, but by this stage on Groot Island, in a way, it was it was too late. Uh, Anindilyakwa people were rejecting written literacies of all forms. Uh, I spoke to one older man who's who's now passed away. Um, I asked him if he wanted to learn to read in his language and he said, no, I didn't want to learn Energiaqua because I could speak Anjaliakwa. Um He was asserting that his language was going to remain a spoken language and I guess by by resisting the writing down of his language, he was also resisting missionary interference in his language. The missionaries couldn't know his language in the way that he did. Uh, they couldn't gain control of it. They couldn't contain it in a dictionary and a grammar. They couldn't claim to have that knowledge over Aboriginal people and cultures. Uh, it was a way of continuing to, to evade them and to evade their claim to be authorities in his culture and on his country. Um, So, look, there were some individuals who were enthusiastic about the bilingual program, but the missionaries always struggled to find volunteers who were going to teach their language, who were going to work closely with the linguists, and who were going to work in the school. Uh, There wasn't great enthusiasm for it. It was left to a few isolated individuals, and uh, the missionaries faced criticism right through the 70s that there wasn't a single... Aboriginal person on Grew Island who could read Anadhaqwa fluently, despite by this stage a decade of missionary insistence that now they were going to be bilingual and they were going to use language in the school. Uh, Anadhaqwa people continued to evade missionaries by a kind of passive resistance.
0: This must have confused missionaries because in seeing a lot of people resisting English literacy. You know, many of them probably thought, well, if we teach them how to read and write in their own language, at least if they'll accept that.
1: Yes, I mean, in a way, you you feel sorry for the missionaries. They're sort of starting to make these concessions to culture, but they're not thinking about the way that over decades, their, their authority and their control over Indigenous lives has shaped the way that Aboriginal people are are engaging with writing, the way they see the whole purpose of writing. Writing was an instrument of assimilation and colonization. And it seems that in this case, they sort of said, well, thank you very much, but no thanks. Um, We are going to remain the authorities in our language, and our language is an oral language.
0: Why did an Indigenous resident on, on the island we've been talking about, Groot Island, ask a white anthropologist named David Turner to, quote, write their bible write the bible of of these of this indigenous community
1: so david turner came in the late 60s and interesting the the um the missionaries tried to stop him they they really didn't want an alternative non-indigenous perspective on the island but he he came to do his research on green island in the late 60s and naijiwara amagula who interesting was a he was a church leader uh so he had embraced a lot of the missionary culture although Again, not always in the ways that missionaries hoped. He asked them to write their Bible, uh, to record their culture in a book in a way that could be an authority in later discussions around land rights and whose territory was where. To me, this shows it's it's interesting because Najwa didn't want to, to read this Bible to gain more information, but there's a sense of recognition of the authority that having something in a book brings, that, you know the physical presence of a book uh, it, it signals, or it can be used to signal a, a legitimacy and authority, um, and so by having Anandiacal knowledge in a book, uh, it was a kind of validation of Anandiacal knowledge. But also, this isn't to say that Anandiacal uh, ways of resolving disputes were completely overturned. Uh, Turner argued, he said that if what he had written didn't suit Najwa's interests, the book would simply be dismissed and they would say, oh, what could a white man know about know about us? Um we could dismiss this book if it's if it's not what we want uh the book the book's authority came from the old people the old people that gave turner the knowledge rather than from the the script itself so in a way nanji was was having it both ways Uh, he was recognizing that um, there's a certain legitimacy um, that can be asserted through having things in books but ultimately uh, his cultural knowledge was bound up in the old people and their knowledge of country
0: I'm joined by Laura Rademacher, postdoctoral research associate at the Australian National University and specifically the Center for Indigenous History there. We've been talking about an article she contributed to the volume Indigenous Textual Cultures, Reading and Writing in the Age of Global Empire and that article derives from her book, her book called Found in Translation, Many Meanings on a North Australian Mission. And in fact, that is just one chapter of your book, Found in Translation. What else does your book address?
1: I guess I'm really interested in the way that differences in language and culture and the necessity of translation shaped the the encounter between Indigenous people and missionaries. Um, And the ways that Indigenous people exploited this difference, um, exploited missionary ignorance and white people's ignorance of language, to find ways to manoeuvre in a really unequal situation of power in a really unequal context. Um, So this example, the ways that Indigenous people chose not to learn to read and write, but other times the ways that Aboriginal people translated Christianity in ways that upheld their relationships to country, the ways that upheld their knowledge. Uh, I'm interested in in understanding that Aboriginal people haven't only been victims, although there has been great injustice uh, in finding seeing the ways that they made the most most of a bad situation, really, and exploited the situation to pursue their interests.
0: What kinds of translation do you address in this book, Found in Translation? I understand at least uh, part of it was that this Church Missionary Society, which I guess was um, kind of the organization that oversaw the foundation of the mission in 1943 that we've been talking about, translated biblical texts into the native tongue is that correct
1: yeah so the, the mission I mean eventually uh, this again this wasn't until the late 60s because of the overwhelming focus on English but they they eventually worked on on translating portions of scripture and translating the prayer book and things like that into Anandiaqua. Uh but what was what was really interesting and, and David Turner reported on this uh, that andiaqua people took parts of the Christian story and Integrated it into their own song lines, uh, their own spiritual practices, completely without the knowledge of the missionaries. This was completely apart from missionaries. It wasn't a missionary thing. In fact, the missionaries thought that they had really failed to convert anyone and that there hadn't been much interest in Christianity. Uh, what they were witnessing was the Aboriginal people's rejection of their Christianity and their kinds of spiritual practice. But um, Aboriginal people were embedding Christian meanings in the landscape and singing about them in their, own, uh, in their own funeral songs and in their own ceremonial practices in ways that the missionaries just had no idea about.
0: We've been talking a lot about the writing, getting, trying to get people to, to write English. Your book focuses also on uh, trying to get people to speak English. What, what were the responses of this Aboriginal community to those efforts?
1: So in the same way that the missionaries were obsessed with getting people to learn to read English, uh, getting people to speak English in a, in a correct and proper way that they, they deemed to be proper was, was part of the civilizing mission. It was a way the Aboriginal people were meant to embody a kind of a, a civilized citizenry. But Aboriginal people were not as interested in learning to speak English as missionaries hoped and actually used the difference in language to evade missionaries. It was very easy to not learn to speak English, but it was also easy to, to feign misunderstanding, uh, to not understand missionaries' instructions, uh, to, to make it seem as if what missionaries are saying were falling on deaf ears. And missionaries really had no way of controlling this. Uh, when missionaries wanted to learn to speak Aboriginal languages to get themselves understood, Often Anediaco people would give them, you know, would do the old trick of giving them a swear word or something rude or, you know, telling them genitalia meant hello or something like that. And missionaries were often found to be making a fool of themselves when they tried to speak language. Then at the same time, when they tried to give people instructions about how work should be done or about the Christian message, uh, very often Aboriginal people apparently seemed not to understand. Um, so there's a, there's a kind of passive resistance and an active resistance through language uh, because of the missionaries' linguistic incompetence that Aboriginal people exploited to, to limit the missionary imposition in their lives.
0: Your book goes into the broader context of kind of Australian colonization policy uh, can you talk about the context, and maybe we could talk about the three decades, the 40s, 50s, and 60s. That's the kind of the period where uh, you focus your essay in the book, Indigenous Textual Cultures. Um, what, what was going on in terms of official policy in relation to Aboriginal people?
1: So there, there was quite a crisis in, in Aboriginal affairs in the 1930s, um, there was a lot of humanitarian activism down south, a lot of movement from the churches and various academics and communists lobbying the government saying that the living conditions of Aboriginal people wasn't acceptable and there was there was a debate about what the future of Aboriginal people was going to be. Um, until this time, white Australia had assumed that Aboriginal people were simply going to die out. That, Uh, They would become extinct, and so there was no need for a long-term policy approach to Aboriginal people. Um, But from the 30s, it became apparent that actually Aboriginal people weren't going anywhere. Uh, And the debate was whether to segregate Indigenous people on reserves away from white Australia, or whether to assimilate Aboriginal people into white Australia. And... I guess the real deciding factor was the Second World War, the presence of military troops up in the Northern Territory in these formerly remote parts of Australia and American troops too. Um, it became apparent that Aboriginal people couldn't be simply kept apart, uh, that they, they were a presence in Australia, but also that um, they were very capable. Um, Aboriginal people were integral to the war effort in North Australia. And so this tipped the balance in terms of uh, Turned to an assimilation-type policy, uh, where the goal was for Aboriginal people to acquire supposedly the skills and the capacities to eventually become integrated into white Australia. And this was this was spoken of as if it was an anti-racist policy, as if the all the alternatives were um, were the, were the racist option, and this was the one which believed in Aboriginal capacity. But of course, it's all premised on Aboriginal people conforming to uh, white Australian culture, and on the superiority of white Australian culture, and the assumption that Aboriginal culture was somehow uh, backwards, underdeveloped, unsophisticated, and Aboriginal people faced severe restrictions on their daily lives under assimilation policy. They had no freedom of movement. They couldn't marry without permission. Uh, they couldn't leave these mission areas. They couldn't go and choose where they wanted to be educated or anything like that. Uh, Aboriginal people were confined to reserves and missions largely and, and couldn't move about without the permission of the um, various government bureaucrats. And so this policy, which was supposedly about, you know, citizenship and integration of freedom, actually uh, had a similar result in terms of alienating, isolating Indigenous people and restricting their freedoms. It was a highly paternalistic policy, even though it it claimed to be the enlightened policy that was going to bring citizenship rights, it, was, it actually denied Aboriginal people citizenship rights and freedoms.
0: So, Laura, how did you get involved in, in this kind of research anyway? What, what attracted you to this particular community uh, in this part of Australia and these sets of issues?
1: Sure. Well, look, I, I should have said this up front, I'm, I'm not Indigenous myself. I, I would hope to be an ally to indigenous people but ultimately uh, that's something for them to judge uh, I got interested in mission history around um, 2008 so Kevin Rudd uh, then Prime Minister of Australia issued an apology to the stolen generation these are the the children who were forcibly removed from their families and made to live in institutions or adopted out to white families uh, Kevin Rudd Gave this apology, and I learned that this mission organisation, the Church Missionary Society, that my family uh, had always supported, uh, was was implicated in this stolen generation. The Church Missionary Society had taken in these children who had been removed from their families. Um, so I learned that it was, this is a past that my family, people just like me, had been intimately involved in. That the the nice white women were not always the goodies of the story, and that. This is something with which I personally needed to come to terms intellectually, but also emotionally and spiritually. Um, so it sort of it set me on this path that I I started researching mission history. I wanted to learn more about North Australia because this is where this organisation had worked, and I was particularly interested in Great Island because of this question around language. Um, I knew that there had been people working to translate the Bible there. I knew that there had been a bilingual program there that had fallen apart. And so I wanted to understand how language shaped that that colonizing encounter.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us, Laura Rademacher, postdoctoral research associate at the Center for Indigenous History at the Australian National University, author of Found in Translation, Many Meanings at a North Australian Mission, And a chapter of that book has been adapted for the new volume and incorporated into the new volume, Indigenous Textual Cultures, Reading and Writing in the Age of Global Empire, published by Duke University Press. Uh, Thanks so much, Laura, for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And this is C.S. suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.